0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Technology Report, sponsored by GM Defense. I'm your host, Vago Moradian, And joining us today is Dr. Mark Lewis, uh, who heads the Emerging Technologies Institute of the National Defense Industrial Association, uh, a new think tank designed to focus uh, the nation's attention on technological problems and solutions uh, brought to you by uh, the U.S. Uh, defense uh, and Aerospace Industrial Base, but also its technology, uh, its technological and uh, Uh, educational institutions. Mark, it's an honor and pleasure always having you on the program.
1: Vago, thanks so much for having me. I always enjoy it. And
0: before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and L3Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. I should also point out that you were uh, one of the nations, you are one of the nations leading hypersonic uh, weapons uh, experts and in fact was uh, in the last administration uh, trying to make sense uh, or rationalize or get on a better track uh, the nation's hypersonic uh, weapons programs. Uh, You were kind enough to join my colleague, uh, Laura Winter, on her Downlink podcast a couple of weeks ago in the wake of um, China's fractional orbital bombardment system, right? I mean, when that news came out of uh, the tests um, over the summer uh, that seemed to have focused everybody's attention. And every conference I go to Uh, there is an enormous amount of discussion, right? What were the tests? What actually happened? Was it a Sputnik moment? You and I have discussed, you and Laura have discussed, you've discussed with others that this wasn't a Sputnik moment. But then invariably, right, we start to mirror image, right? Well, they did a FOBS. We have to do a FOBS. How do we need to think about hypersonics, right? You and I have had this conversation before over a very long period of time. Right. What is... What's the role of hypersonic weapons? How do we need to think about hypersonic weapons in our arsenal? Because now it's a, well, they've got a lot. We have to make a lot. There'll be hypersonic exchanges. Not abundantly clear that that's how that's going to play out. There are things that are called nuclear weapons, right? I mean, how, right, how do right. where do where do hypersonics fit into this um, technologically, architecturally,
1: operationally? So, so let me start. I I love the way you frame that question because it gets to the heart of the matter that we're, we shouldn't be developing hypersonics just to match the Chinese capability. Although obviously we want to be able to match any peer competitor, but we we're, we should be pursuing hypersonics for our own reasons, independent of whether anyone else is pursuing them. And that is because of the capabilities that hypersonic systems bring to bear. And that means that it's really important that as we pursue our hypersonic systems, we're seeing the things that they make that make the most sense for us, the United States, not necessarily the same things that make sense for China or Russia or another nation. So with that, with that in mind, you know, I always put a very strong emphasis on tactical hypersonic systems. Um, really fast cruise missiles, for one. Things that, you know, you launch out of the bomb bay of a of a of a bomber, launch from the wing of a bomber. Those are the hypersonic systems that I actually think have the biggest payoff for several reasons. One, they're the ones that well that are more will be most helpful to us, that give us the most capability. Two, they're also the lowest cost systems, so they're the things that we can, we can deploy most effectively. Three, because they're lowest cost, we can produce them in large numbers. And every time we have war gamed and studied and analyzed the use of hypersonic systems, we come to the conclusion that the nation that has the deepest magazine is the nation that is most successful. Now having said that, let me step back and say it, it is indeed important that we develop defensive capabilities. And we, we obviously can't ignore the developments in Russia and China. They're extremely significant. Um, the Chinese, if nothing else, have shown us how seriously they are taking this entire research area. So we need to be paying attention to that. We need to be developing our defensive capabilities. But it's important we focus those efforts on defending against their systems that pose the biggest threat. And there again, I'll come back to the the things that are tactical, the hypersonic weapons that can uh, that hold an aircraft carrier at risk, the hypersonic weapons that hold air bases at risk. That's where our focus needs to be. And then one more step, and that is we can't be satisfied with just matching what another nation is doing. Uh, The American way of war is we always want to be technologically superior. And so we need to be taking the technology one step further. We need to be going beyond what any peer competitor is doing and thinking about things like hypersonic ISR systems, reusable hypersonic systems. And if we do that, then that will keep us at the forefront.
0: To that point, right, the fractional orbital bombardment system is not new, right? I mean, the Soviet Union experimented with it, um, I think actually deployed uh, a, a capability. The The difference is that it did not have a maneuvering glide body, right? I mean, that's apparently yes, what the Chinese correct. are doing differently. Um, yes, correct. What, what are... Um, what are the uses of this system, right? You have to look at what your adversary is going to do and then the volume they're going to do it because it is very much a first strike weapon, right? So it tends to get yep. people's attention. Yep. Um, and we don't have a defense, right? I mean, so so talk to us a little bit about um, how we need to think differently and whether it's a question of technological adaptation of that which we have or actually something a lot more dramatic in terms of the changes we have to make if we're going to try to intercept this stuff. Or it's just going to be like, well, you're just going to lose an X number of things on day one, which is never kind of a good way of going about it, right?
1: Yeah. So so I actually wonder if the Chinese aren't uh, doing strategic messaging to try to distract us from focusing on the most important hypersonic systems when they do things like this this fractional orbital system. So so you're right that if I com- if you combine a hypersonic glide body, with this orbital system that reports have them doing, Um, it gives you extra capability above and beyond what the Russians ever demonstrated in the 1960s. So the limit of a fractional orbital bombardment system is uh, traditionally you put it into an orbit and then that orbit significantly constrains how you use it. You can only bring it back from orbit, have it hit a target within certain parameters that are dictated by the orbit that you're on. you add a glide body to the front end of that, then you get much more cross range. So you can you know, travel further away from your orbital path. So it makes for a much more flexible weapon. That's, as you point out, that's, that very much looks like a first strike weapon. Now, what difference does it make that make in a strategic calculation? Well, today, if we see a standard ICBM launch, it's a ballistic missile, which means its trajectory is mostly governed by gravity. So if you see it launch, you got a pretty good idea where it's coming down. So God forbid we're in that situation. We see a missile launch. We'll know, is it headed to New York? Is it headed to Philadelphia? Is it headed to the missile fields out West? All right. With, a hypersonic system, any hypersonic maneuvering system, that calculation becomes much more complicated because it can maneuver, it can divert, it can go in different directions. A fractional orbital system makes it even more complicated because you have less time to respond. And it also could be coming from a from a different direction. It might not be coming from the north. It could be coming from the south, right? Having said that, where are we today? Let's say Russia, China, whatever, nation launches an ICBM against us. Let's say we know where it's going, if say, it's headed to Washington or New York. What would our response be? Well, we don't actually have a response of significance. Our missile defense capabilities are specifically not, not designed to handle an all-out exchange, right? They're mostly focused on rogue nations, North Korea, Iran, those 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 nations where they'd be launching relatively few numbers. If there's an all-out exchange, um, it's a it is a bad day for everyone. We obviously never want to get to that point. But not knowing where it's going in that situation, I hate to say it, doesn't actually change our calculation very much. Um, or you know, another way to think about it, let's say we know that today the ICBM is, is headed towards New York City. Well, how would we respond? Are we gonna evacuate New York City in 10 minutes? We couldn't evacuate New, New Orleans uh, when the last hurricane was coming through in less than 10 hours. So how do we respond to that? So that's why to a certain extent, what the Chinese have done is both eye-opening and a, dist- a distraction. It's eye-opening because eye-opening because it reminds us of the technological advances that they've made. It's also eye-opening because it shows that the Chinese are thinking about global projection of power. They're thinking beyond their the, the Indo-Pacific region, all right? And we see other indications along those lines, the Chinese trying to build uh, a bases on the Atlantic, another example of that. But it's also less startling in that it really doesn't give them a lot more capability. And I will point out, in the United States, we have not pursued the coupling of nuclear weapons and hypersonic systems, because we don't see an advantage in doing that.
0: One of the big debates and what's different from the last time uh, that you joined us uh, are uh, the news reports that the Chinese hypersonic glide body in this test may have deployed a capability from it. Right. Mm. I understand, you know, a lot more about this uh, than you're uh, allowed to discuss because you still maintain an advisory capacity to uh, the, uh, the defense department. And I should also note you were the United States Air Force chief scientist, uh, as, as well. Right. Um, yeah. and so you've been following not only what we're doing in the space, but what our adversaries have been doing in this space as well. Right. Is there anything technologically about what was, let me put it this way, right. And please be as philosophical yeah. as you need to be an answer.
1: <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: you know, is there anything about any of this that indicates Sputnik moment or is all of this as you look at it as somebody who knows the technology knows the capability knows our capability and knows what our adversaries have been doing and by the way as you pointed out our adversaries have been extremely open about what they're doing and why mm-hmm. they're doing it right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. is there is there anything about this test that is as holy toledo to you
1: so from a technology standpoint no from a signaling of intent standpoint, yeah. All right. Again, this is the Chinese saying that they're developing a first strike system. That they're developing a global strike system. That to me is the biggest takeaway. But you know, it's it, it's really important that we not we not assume that the Chinese are ten feet tall. They really aren't. And if you look at almost every single thing we see in China, it's all derivative of U.S. systems. Um, in some cases, they've they, they've they've stolen our stuff, hook, line, and sinker. In some cases, they've They've, they've taken concepts that we've developed and didn't pursue, and they've invested and pursued them. The fractional orbital bombardment system, that's, that's an old Russian system. So, so we've really seen nothing. At least I've really seen nothing coming out of China that makes me step back and say, holy cow, how did they ever pull that one off? But what is startling is the incredible depth of investment, the amount of dollars, the manpower, the, the, the activities that we see underway, which, which as you point out, they they love to brag to us about. I mean, they they did their 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 2019 military parade. They were they were very proud to show off their investments in hypersonics and their existing deployed systems. So so that's that's really the most startling thing that comes out of this.
0: And and, and nothing about this is a defiance of the laws of physics, right? As
1: as it's been characterized by some. Well, so you know <laughs> you you can't change the laws of physics. So. Um, as I think I, 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 I've told other folks, you know, trying to do a deployment from something that's moving at hypersonic speeds is really, really difficult. So again, don't don't assume that the Chinese are are are, are ten feet tall, that they've got some magic secret sauce that lets them lets them violate the laws of physics. Um, I'll give you an example. Just just uh, late last week, there was this report that the Chinese had invented some new type of hypersonic engine, and they had tested it, and was going to lead the way to 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 uh, new hypersonic capabilities. That was actually total nonsense. The engine that they tested was a small-scale version of an engine that was developed in the 1980s in the United States, and which we figured out had very very limited applicability. And 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 so you, you, t- you tend to see a fair amount of of hype and overinflation and over in some areas, but at the same time. I want to emphasize: we need to take these Chinese investments very seriously, as there are parts of their their portfolio, including the stuff that they have openly shown us, that could have a significant impact on, especially the Indo-Pacific, uh, uh, and, and especially the way we the way we might operate in 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 the face of a conflict.
0: Um, let me ask you a uh, right: you're a technologist, you're a policy person, but you also have uh, a, a very good. Um, so- Strategic messaging mind, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, not not to take a, a scene. You and I love talk about talk talking in movie when movie lines, right? Uh, <laughs> in 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 Doctor Strange, love one of the best lines was, you know, well, why didn't you tell us deterrence only works if you tell us? That's, and yeah, he was that's like, right. well, that was the big announcement on Monday at the party conference, right? You missed yeah. it by that much. That much, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, one of the things we found with the Chinese is that uh, Mark, every time we've done something. To them as messaging or a brushback pitch, right? I mean, the, so the question is, we do have capability mm-hmm. and there is a concern among some that we're not doing a good enough job messaging that right. capability to our to right. the Chinese to sort of indicate like you're not 10 feet tall and we've got a lot of capability. But what I've been told by many friends of mine uh, in this administration, the last administration, the one before it, the problem is every time we evidence, we show them something, they then go to school on it and then they copy it. Right. Uh, mm, yeah. whether a short period of time or they steal it or, or what have you, what's the right balance in, in terms of messaging, discussing, revealing or not um, so that your adversary, you know what I mean? You want to message yeah, yeah, your adversary, yeah, 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 but yeah. you also don't want to give anything too yes. important away.
1: Yes. So, you know, the word balance is exactly the right word in this context, right? There needs to be a balance. We tend, I believe, to uh, lean much far, far, far too uh, far over to the side of keeping everything secret to the point that it loses its deterrent value. And, and I think General, General John Hayden, who, as you know, recent, recently retired uh, as vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he, he talked about that pretty extensively uh, um, in, in his last few weeks in the Pentagon. Um, You know, part of the deterrent value is making it clear this is what we can do to you if you uh, make the mistake of picking a fight with us. Now, hypersonics is a particularly interesting area because the Chinese have indeed been able to steal, bend, borrow, copy, you name it, uh, a, a lot of what we've done. But that was because, frankly, we were a little bit naive and we also had a bit of hubris. We thought we were so far ahead that uh, no one could catch up to us. And I think we've had a wake-up call. So indeed, right now, if you look at the the, the whole hypersonic portfolio, a lot of attention is being paid to tightening up uh, what we say, what technical details we give out, uh, making sure we're controlling access to all all the programs that, that we're developing. So Again, I think it comes down to balance. You make sure you protect the secret sauce, the most important aspects of the system. But there's nothing more wrong with reminding someone every once in a while of the incredible, incredible capabilities that we can bring to bear.
0: And are you comfortable? We are looking that the hypersonic portfolio we're envisioning is the hypersonic portfolio that we need for the future, right? I mean, I know this is something you wrestled yeah. with when yeah. you, were, you were on the job. And, you know, there are still a lot of debates, right? I mean, there are folks who are saying, hey, no, you know, big expensive is is the way to go. Uh, And obviously, then there is, right, a a debate about, um, you know, are we shooting, right? I mean, we've had uh, between Dave Deptula uh, and Tim Ray, right, the Global Strike Command chief, who were saying, Mm -hmm. like, look, these things can't cost as much as uh, an F-35 or half an F-35 when we launched them. Much better to have a whole larger arsenal of smaller things. I think that's what you're arguing. Yes. And then you have Tom Carrico of CSIS who uh, joins us on a regular basis who says, well, look, you know, once once you get up on that production cycle for these longer range weapons, you're going to reduce their costs just like you did on the F-35, right? That went from a couple of hundred yes. million dollars a piece uh, to, to now around an $80 million jet, right? Or, or at least that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the goal. You know where 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 are we on getting this uh, balance right from from your standpoint? And are there still technological long poles in this tent? I I hate that phrase, but you know, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Are are we are you are you comfortable with where we are technologically? And then portfolio wise, whether we're making the the right because there seems to be still too much public debate, which suggests that
1: we're actually not where we where we need to be. So I would say this, we are now on the right path. And by that, I mean, each one of the services understands the importance of hypersonics, why they need to pursue it, why they need to deploy it, uh, to the point where, as you know, the services are actually fighting over it. You know, we, we saw the little dust up between the Army and the Air Force uh, uh, arguing over or over who loves hypersonics more. So if you actually look in terms of real dollars, we've got very significant funding that has put has now been put in place for hypersonics. And that was coming out of the previous administration, but the current administration has endorsed that. You see that in the F twenty in, in the FY22 budget. So that's all good. The devil is, of course, in the details. So if I look at the overall portfolio, there are frankly tweaks that I think we, we probably should be making. I will give you one example. You know, I alluded to earlier. Um, for me, one of the most important applications of hypersonic systems are small things that can, can be launched in large numbers. That means... Air breathing hypersonic systems, hypersonic air breathing cruise missiles. Right, that's an area that we absolutely need to be plussing up. All right, we've got some activities. Um, I'll highlight the, the work of the Joint Hypersonic Transition Office. The JHTO is doing a marvelous job of supporting some of those some of those technologies. Um, there's the DARPA Hawk program, but that needs need, needs to roll into programs of record because that gives us the best chance of building things that are v- first really small packages. That means we can put a lot of them into a, into a bomb bay but also reduces the cost. I do wanna point out though, I think it's really important that we consider cost of the weapon. It's not the cost per unit, it's the cost of the effect. If my hypersonic weapon is twice as expensive as my subsonic weapon, but it's five times more likely to survive and, 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 and accomplish its goal, then it's, it's, it's cost effective. And that's what often, often gets lost in, in, in these discussions. And as part of that cost, there's also the opportunity cost. So for example, if I'm comparing a hypersonic weapon flying at you know, Mach 5 or Mach 6, covering a mile per second, if I compare that to a subsonic weapon, I have to account for the opportunity cost of, if the subsonic weapon takes me much longer to prosecute a target, what can my opponent do in that period of time? So if I save a few, uh, you know, a few billions of dollars on my weapons, but I, it takes me so long to hit my targets, I miss the targets, or I give an opponent time to sink an aircraft carrier or take out an expensive bomber or destroy an airfield. Well, then that doesn't work, work out very much much in my favor in terms of the cost curve. And that often doesn't get considered in these conversations.
0: Um, let, me, let me ask you one last thing, uh, Mark, uh, which is on the defensive side of things, right? I mean, as, as you indicated, defending against a, a fractional orbital bombardment system is is very very hard right i mean it is mm-hmm. rods mm-hmm. from god uh you know it's it's basically coming straight down at you um yep. which which has a whole series of other benefits right but um how do we need to think about defending ourselves from this right the long range targeting issue right you're trying to get a telephone pole across a very long uh, distance, uh, which, which is which is difficult, right? I mean, the U.S. Navy's mm-hmm. answer to this always is it's a very long kill chain. We can disrupt that kill chain mm, un- unless you sort of can't, right? Because you too, <laughs> yeah, right. you're, you're going to be under fire, right? Yeah. How much of this is a question, as I've asked you before, of adaptation mm-hmm. of, of that which we have or rather a wholesale rethinking of what we have in order to be able to intercept this? because Because the speeds, the ranges the size of you know i mean this this is sort of a little bit of a of a different ball game right i mean it, it yes, helps yes, yes. to be ballistic and throw stuff in your ballistic path that you're going to fly through and if you're deploying decoys from this sort of stuff right i mean which is a little bit of the trick and the challenge mm-hmm. um it it's it gets it starts to get sporty really quick and you're spending a lot it of does. stuff to take it- out
1: a little stuff it does. It does. So so there are technological solutions that will allow you to stop hypersonic systems. And in some cases, you use their speed against them. So these are not unstoppable, but they are hard to stop. And I argue that the, the most challenging part is first identifying it. That, that, that's the first step. If I can't see it, if I can't spot it, if I don't know what it is, then I can't react to it. So that part is certainly new. And so, so uh, a couple of months ago, there was a paper written by two researchers who claimed that existing space systems were capable of detecting any hypersonic system. That paper was totally and completely and utterly wrong. Our existing systems are not quite capable yet, but we are building systems that are. That's the HBTSS, the Hypersonic Ballistic Tracking Satellite System that the Space Development Agency and the Missile Defense Agency are working on. That is absolutely critical, number one. Number two, We've got to increase the speed at which we make a decision. If a weapon is flying at us at a, at a mile a second, we don't have a lot of time to figure out what it is and figure out how to respond. So we need to increase that speed. We need to build our own kill chain. I often hear people say, well, we don't have the kill chain today to do that. That's correct. We need to build it. We can build it. We know how to do it. We've got technologies that point us in that direction. It requires, it requires the right investment. And then three, we need to be thinking about this in terms of a layered, layered response. It's not just one thing. Uh, Our our mutual dear friend Dick Hallion likes to liken it to the kamikaze attacks, which were originally devastating until we figured out how to deal with them. And and the way we dealt with them in World War II was layered defense. And we need to be thinking the same way. And we need to be thinking about not how do we just stop one? How do we stop a swarm? I may be able to stop one of these hypersonic weapons headed towards my carrier headed headed towards my airbase. How do I stop five? How do I stop six? That needs to be the mindset.
0: Um, Last question. There are those who say, uh, Todd Harrison being uh, one of them from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, that this FOBS test may not be all that it's cracked up to be, right? That he's he's skeptical. Are you convinced that the Chinese have tested what it is that we think that they've tested?
1: So, you know, the Chinese, of course, claimed it was a space plane. You know, it was a reflection of a, a, re- re- reflection of a planet off a of swamp gas off of, uh, off, of uh, off of a weather balloon. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Move along. Um, look, you know, I I we, uh, there's always going to be a certain amount of uncertainty, but the intelligence community has done a phenomenal job, and they've been exceedingly accurate as as they have uh, figured out what our peer competitors are up to across the board in this area. It's a tribute. There, I know of no better success story on the capabilities of our national intelligence community. So. You know, without getting into too many details, I would say that uh, the, the Chinese test was was certainly, as I said earlier, uh, opening in some ways.
0: Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us.
1: Vaga, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.